The Boise Dev Podcast is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is a free platform for podcasts like this one. It allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. You can even add in songs from Spotify to help spice up those episodes. Anchor will make sure that your podcast is distributed pretty much everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, and many more. Plus, you can make money from your podcast with an ad like this. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. You are listening to the Boise Dev Podcast. Council President Elaine Clegg, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah, so we're going to talk about some fun topics, infrastructure, and nerdy things that people like to talk about. But I'm always interested to sort of understand people's paths to to where they got. And your path runs through deep roots in Boise, right? Absolutely. And Grew up here, um, lived here almost all my life. So I was going back and I was I was doing some digging on... Um, on you, and you were a four-year letter winner at Boise State, right? Yes. And you're still in the Boise State women's basketball record book. Um, I am. I didn't know Yeah, for uh, (laughs) you are in the top 10 of rebound average per game. Well, there you go. So you were the the queen of rebounds. That was my job. Yeah. And so there was (laughs) two Elaines on the team, right? There were. And tell me about that experience and and your time at Boise State and, and what that's kind of built for you now? Well, it was a really formative experience. We had a team that was uh, almost all homegrown, and we ended up going to the Sweet 16 in 1975, which was just a a real growing experience. Uh, Got to meet Pat Head. She was one of the players on one of the other teams. Um, Gosh, it was, you know, just an experience of a lifetime that sort of set you up to go, oh, you can, if you work hard, work together, you can do really great stuff. It doesn't matter what your background is. I saw that you won, you and your team won 14 straight games. Yep. That's about unheard of. I mean, in any sport, 14 <laughs> games. In basketball, that's pretty well. And we, um, that year that we went to nationals, we, we beat. Washington State University, our first game of the year, and they had a, a player who was six foot seven and another one who was six foot three, and had won um, everything for years in a row. Uh, so it was it was really amazing. Fun to top of what Pack Eight power probably at that point. Yeah, 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 exactly. And you know it's always fun to beat <laughs> beat the teams from across the borders too. So you wrote this appreciation of um, your coach at the time, Connie Thorngren, in the Statesman a few years ago. Ago, um, when she had passed away, right. and there was something in it that struck me. Is she, you, you, I'm going to quote. I feel like Tim Russell here. I'm going to quote you back to you. Um, you said the real gen- genius was how Mrs. T took a talented but ragtag group of Idaho women and helped them grow into successful adults while teaching them how to win. We didn't only learn how to win games. It's no accident that all of us figured out a way to win in life as well. What have you taken from that that you apply now to leadership? Well, she was such an interesting woman. Her background really was in psychology and um, the psychology of power. And so as we grew into the team that we were, which was um, a a 
like I say, started out kind of ragtag, but we all had good skills and learning how to how to put them together in a way that maximized everyone's contribution. We also began to understand what power that gave us. And so I've always sort of been a student of power as well. And um, you certainly see a lot of abuse of power, but power used well um, can have such an enormous um, so, sort of uh, influence on, on raising everything up. And instead of just doing one thing, it creates opportunity to do many more. And so um, my service on the city council, I've always tried to figure out not just how to get that one thing done, but get it done in such a way that you build the capacity of all the people around you to do other things. So you graduated Boise State and you entered adulthood and you've done a whole variety of interesting things. Idaho smart growth and more. What made you decide, you know what, I'm going to run for office? Well, I, you know, I have five kids. And, um, so early in my career, uh, work at home, I had a small sole proprietorship business. And, um, so I spent a lot of time in my neighborhood and as a result of that ended up, um, engaged in my neighborhood politics and, uh, engaged as this, the neighborhood association president. Uh, and that's when Hulls Gulch came along. Yeah. Boy, that's and a big issue. I got involved in Hulls Gulch, um, in a place where the neighborhood association really couldn't oppose the development that was going to happen, but we could choose not to support it and work for some other solution. So it allowed me to grow into that, you know, utilize the things I'd learned in basketball, frankly, um, to grow into a role of figuring out what that other solution was. You know, we were at a binary place, either it was going to develop or it was going to be nothing, and we ended up somewhere in the middle. And um, learned from that that maybe I had some skills that could translate into making change. Uh, I supported by being the campaign manager uh, for her in-house run for city council and um, made a promise that I'd consider doing it when my kids got old enough that it made sense for me to do so. So, you know, played around in the next 12 years uh, on committees at the city, uh, doing various other community things, including going to work for Idaho Smart Growth, and finally realized that I really did uh, think I had the skills and the interest in trying to move the city forward, so I ran. So, as someone who worked uh, for one employer for 17 years and knows how fast that went, you're in your 17th year, I believe, on council, and you've got... You know, at least four more to go here. You're kind of the institutional memory on that council at this point. Do you think that that gives you um, a lot more responsibility to help people understand and help your fellow counselors and and the community understand where we've been to shape where we're going? Um, I have felt some weight of that, especially this time as we've had more turnover than usual. And um, for me, it's not necessarily responsibility to do something myself, but it's a responsibility to pass on that knowledge um, to make sure that the groundwork that I feel like I worked hard to lay is is not for naught, but that the foundation is still solid going forward, and particularly to take the issues I've worked on and make sure that uh, the people I'm working with today and people in the community understand what I've learned about and what I think could help take them forward so that 
when I do leave, um, there will be folks who can carry on. Not to say I have all the best ideas sure. at all, but but um, certainly I learned a lot from the folks who preceded me, and and hopefully the folks who who come after me can can uh, learn something from my my experience. I hear you talk about your oath a lot, and and frankly, that's not super common in politics. <laughs> it came up. This month with Mitt Romney, he, he sort of said that. Yeah. Um, it, you seem to take that really seriously. What is it that embeds that in you to really look at that as a guidepost? Well, my father was a World War II veteran, and um, he was in the infantry all the way from Omaha Beach to Berlin. Um, he was in a half track and you know, many of the worst battles of World War II and came home, frankly, wounded from that. Um, we didn't have a word for it then, but we know now he, he would have been diagnosed with PTSD, right. I'm pretty sure. And yet, despite all of that, always carried this um, very deep um, understanding and feeling that what he did was worth it, that, that the sacrifice he made, that the service he did um, saved the world. Right. He felt like so we're so freedom. thankful for those folks, right? Yeah, and saved some lives, and so um, that was always deeply embedded in me. And the first time I took the oath of office, and I'm a I'm a student of history. I have a degree in art, and I have a whole bunch of of uh, credits in history that uh, aren't worth anything because there wasn't a history minor. But what they were worth is is my knowledge of how historically government has worked, and and so the. First first time I took the oath of office, um, it really struck me deeply that I was swearing to uphold the Constitution of the United States, of the state of Idaho, the laws of the city of Boise. And for me, that was a big weight, a big responsibility. And I've always felt that way. And I, I guess I wish that other elected members, other people who take oaths felt the same, because I think if you view it in that lens, then the work that you're doing is never for yourself. It's always for the institution. And at least for me, that's as it should be. So we kind of just went through it. Uh, I think it's fair to characterize it as a change election in, in the Valley, right. right? Eagle and and in other areas, certainly in Boise. Um, but you won pretty handily. Why do you think voters said, yep, we want to have a lane on our side for another term? Well, I hope it's for those very reasons we've just talked about. I'm, I'm committed, not for myself, but for the betterment of this city. I'm always looking for solutions. I'm always looking to the future. I've told people time and time again, I will not run again when I don't have any, feel like I don't have anything more to give. And don't elect me if you don't think I have anything more to give. And I think that honesty and transparency has paid off. So let's talk about some of that policy. And I'll just say I have a little bit of a cold and we actually postponed from a week ago and I'm still dealing with it. So I apologize if people are like, why is he hacking up a lung? But um, you first approached or we first started talking about doing this podcast last year um, because I had had a conversation with Luke Kavanagh, who is your counterpart in Meridian on the Meridian Council. And he and I had a pretty wide ranging conversation. If you haven't listened to that, go back and and listen. But um, one of the things we talked about, one of the things that I am oddly passionate about for whatever strange reason, because I'm a a dork too, I guess, (laughs) is this rail corridor. And it goes from out past Micron, really all the way through the valley. And it's obviously connects to the Boise Depot. It's 
bisects Eagle Road. <laughs> it goes by St. Alphonsus. So it really has this interesting path through the valley. I think anybody who's ever looked at a map can look at that and go, Oh, that's interesting. And Luke had talked about an idea that maybe wasn't rail, but that was something alongside of it. And I just wanted to chat with you and see where you think that that rail corridor goes and what you'd like to see and and where we go. Yeah. Well, I've always been really interested in the rail corridor, too. And I know a lot of people in the Valley remember that former Mayor Coles ran a, a, a... vehicle on the rail corridor as a demonstration. Um, for like two weeks or something yeah, in the 90s, weeks. yeah. And while it was a great demonstration, I think it got people really excited. It, it really didn't have much basis in how it would happen. How right. could you make that actually real on the corridor? And maybe he did it knowing that, but hoping that it would spur somebody into action to make that happen. Um, unfortunately, you know, 20 years later, later, here we sit, and that hasn't occurred. There's a lot of policy reasons why, if you dig into it, the federal policy on rail is um, not particularly supportive of local use of Class A rail corridors. In this case, this corridor is owned by uh, Union Pacific, which is a Class A um, railroad. And they're pretty protective of their land, right? Yeah, they're very protective and very protective of that right-of-way. And then we lost the Pioneer, the Amtrak on it and so we lost the uh, even thought of using it for passenger rail so um, certainly it makes a a great deal of sense as that commuter corridor in this valley ultimately over time we could also build up the various station areas to become uh, transit-oriented development frankly Um, downtown Meridian the area around the mall uh, the area up on the bench before the depot, right. there's there's a you know ten mile interchange, the um, CWI Idaho Center downtown Nampa. Ultimately, if you ran along the main line for a ways downtown Caldwell, and perhaps a stop somewhere along uh, Nampa Caldwell Boulevard. So it has all of the right bounds, yeah. but it doesn't. What it doesn't have today are <clears throat> connections to it and real plans to develop the land use in a way that's supportive of that. Um, there's also then the idea of, okay, how, how do you get access to use it? And um, you have to get UP to agree. Is it easier to get them to agree to allow a bus to run side by side with their freight um, trains? Or is it easier perhaps to just use the corridor as is with um, what are called commuter rail vehicles, similar to what's running in Salt Lake between Salt Lake and Ogden, or in As Albuquerque, in yeah. yeah, between Albuquerque and Santa Fe. Um, it's called the Road Runner in Salt Lake. It's called the Front Runner. If you've ever flown into Baltimore and gone into uh, DC at Union Station, you've ridden Mark or um, Amtrak into there. So, so, so not like maybe like an Amtrak car, or I think Caltrain in California, the kind of the bigger right. train cars, but smaller, more compact, more maybe bus-like would be a way to describe it. Well, they're, they're still, they still have to be able to run side by side with those bigger vehicles. Right. So they're still pretty, very substantial vehicles, but, but they're, they're, um, 
they're they're not a full-on train and so in in looking at that it seems to me that that might be the most effective efficient way to use the corridor in the short term Um, but before we even get there we really need to to build up the connective system to it and so um, you know if it the interesting thing is from a cost perspective if you look at the plans that are regional transportation organization compass has done um, we've got about four billion in what they de- 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 um, define as unmet roadway needs and that's primarily widening roads here and there which uh, from my point of view if that worked really well LA would be a really great place to live mm-hmm. I don't right, think right. most of us think it is so I'm not sure and and if you run the models even if you make that four billion dollar investment congestion doesn't really get that much better right for 1.7 billion over those same 20 years we could build a full bus system and commuter rail or something else on the rail corridor and it really does impact congestion unfortunately the the money that's available for those roadway improvements is not the same money that might be available for the transit so i think that's one of the challenges we have to figure out Um, but ultimately if we don't use the rail corridor is my opinion if we don't use the rail corridor for um, commuters between boise and caldwell and maybe ultimately even further than that we will have uh, congestion on the freeway and we will continue to try and widen the freeway beyond what it is today to meet that congestion and in places that have done that um, those not only create tremendous barriers in regions but they also don't work so to me the rail corridor is the one thing we have that could work and we should be figuring out how to use it so it's all such a, such a matrix, right? I was in the, the Bay Area two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and um, had to travel about 43 miles to commute uh, just for a few days, and, and it took almost two hours. And you're just like, what? And it, most of it was freeway, so it's not like it was like little side roads. Right. And so, you you know, people here are talking about the increase in traffic, and it is. there. It's real, but we're not there yet. It's not like that. There are some roads that I think you can look at and go, yeah, maybe Chinden two lanes, that doesn't make any sense anymore. Right. But how do we get how how do we get to a point where we can say, okay, we're gonna get serious. We're gonna look at the rail corridor, we're gonna look at buses, we're gonna look at you know, I, I think the circulator is essentially dead in Boise, but maybe there is some sort of system like that. How do we get there? What what does it take? What can the average person do? Who can they call? Where, where do you think we go to maybe start to chip away at some of these problems? Well, um, so as you know, but maybe your listeners don't, right. um, I've been working for a, a long time on improving the bus system in Boise as a as kind of a beginning point. And last year made kind of a big breakthrough, um, developed a memorandum of understanding with Valley Regional Transit in the city of Boise that just more clearly defined what our relationship was. But I think the important piece of it was that it also clearly defined how much we were willing to contribute to have that bus system. And it did it in a way that I think was maybe a little more understandable to the average person because it's a percentage of... I was able to write a story of it, so it's always helpful when it's understandable. (laughs) Right, right. So it's a percentage of budget instead of a dollar figure 
figure. Because dollar figures, um, you know, may or may not mean a lot depending on if you know what the total budget is. But as a percentage of budget, it's 5%, or at least that's... Of the city's property tax budget. Of the city's property tax budget. That's what we um, settled on as, as a target. And so I think then you can put your head around, well, you know, given everything else the city does is 5%, is that... Does that make sense? Is that where it should be? And for instance, we spend 57% of our full general fund on um, police and fire. And so 5% is about at the level of some of our smaller departments, library, IT, finance, those. Um, So to me, I think it, it makes perfect sense that we'd be there. It also sort of helped other communities understand that rather than arguing dollars with BRT, they really should take a look at their own budget and their own needs and their own folks and say, oh, what percent of our budget would be reasonable? And maybe we could look at it that way. Well, nobody else has adopted the MOU yet. At least folks are beginning to consider looking at it in that different way. Um, So for us now, the MOU also requires that we have a public hearing every year on really the bigger questions around transit. We've always, the public hearings on transit have been, oh, your route's gonna change, what do you think? The fare's gonna change, yeah, what do you think? The very tactical things. And this is more the strategic piece. If we um, did invest more in the bus system, what kinds of things would make it easier for you to use it? So we're proposing, for instance, to run everything to 9.30 at night, maybe, or to add Sunday service, or to increase frequency during peak hour, which of those things are important. And I think if we if we can talk begin talking about it in those ways, then average folks can begin to understand, oh, this could actually serve me if I had those things. And if it could serve me, and then it could get even better, maybe it could serve me even better. So the tactic I've begun to take over the last few years is let's let's figure out what we can do to make what we have better in such a way that your it it becomes a choice that you can make, an option for you to use. Um, because I don't think it's been that for very many people for a long time. So that's one of the dings on the bus system, right? It traditionally, during the day, runs once an hour. Right. It doesn't go very late in the evening. It doesn't, it only runs on a very few routes on Saturday, not at all on Sundays, and not at all on holidays. And so, the, so these are things that you're trying to fix. Stephen Hunt over at VRT said something that, uh, like a year ago, that really struck me that uh, transportation is freedom. And the idea that the reason people are so often married to their car is because if I decide I want to go somewhere, I walk out of my garage, I push the button and I hit reverse and off I go. And with the bus system that is so limiting, you have very little freedom. How do you, I mean, how do we get there? Certainly it's budgetary, but do you think it's cultural? Do you think, what are the factors that get us to a place that maybe buses help facilitate that freedom? I I do think it's partly cultural, partly social. Um, You know, it it is a lot easier to just get in your car, either, you know, in front of your house or in your garage, and off you go. Um, The interesting thing I found in in, um, 
the way that I travel about the city is that the walk I take in the morning or the bike ride I take in the morning really starts my day in a much different way than hopping in my car and, and spending 20 or 30 minutes fighting traffic. And um, I think there is a possibility of delivering a different kind of freedom with transit than what you have with a car. Uh, if, first of all, you get a little bit of a brisk walk that frankly for me is really invigorating and then you get a time period when uh, you're not driving and so you could be on Wi-Fi or you could listen to a podcast or whatever or else it podcast might be without being distracted. <laughs> right. um, then maybe, you know, maybe that's a kind of freedom that actually is an attractive thing. So to get there, I, I think uh, the one strategy that I've seen begun to begin to work in cities of our size around the country is bus rapid transit. So we have a plan right now on State Street for bus rapid transit. And people think that, oh gosh, that's just glorified bus, right? Well, no, it actually isn't. A real good bus rapid transit system has many of the same um, tools, set many of the same strategies built in building it as are used in building a light rail system. I often hear people say, well, we need light rail. Well, light rail costs about $80, billion, or $80 million a mile, and it moves about 25,000 to 30,000 people an hour. We have no need to move that many people. We might need in some time in the foreseeable future to move five or 6,000 people an hour. A good bus rapid transit system can do that, and it only costs maybe five million a mile. So it's something that we can both afford, but if we do it well, can provide those same services that a light rail might provide. And it does that by having dedicated right-of-ways or at least semi-dedicated right-of-ways where the bus isn't fighting traffic with the rest of the cars, but has a little more freedom to move. Um, you allow buses to just pull up and stop and load. You have platforms that are level with the bus so it can load all okay. doors. You have what's called off-board fare collection, so you pay your fare before you get on board and you don't have to go person by person by person paying the fare as you load. And you have, um, with that inline stop, pull up, stop, pull off, you don't have the delay of getting off the road and getting back on the road. Um, another feature of a good bus rapid transit system is that it can, at stoplights, have what's called a jump queue. So just like an emergency vehicle can change the lights, they can change the lights so that they can go um, ahead of the line of cars that is behind them. So we've got evidence that shows a good, what we'd call gold standard bus rapid transit system on State Street could actually save about five minutes of travel time between downtown and Glenwood. Um, that's significant. Mm -hmm. So the five minutes it might take you to get to the bus stop, then you save in your travel time, but it's travel time that you're free to do whatever it is you want to do while you're sitting there on the bus. So, so I think the way we get there is, first of all, to improve the system enough to help people understand that there are, that it is a choice they could take or help them feel comfortable that it is one that they'd want to take, but then take that next step to make it actually a better choice, right. or at least a choice that's somewhat equal in terms of the freedom it offers you. It's a different kind of freedom, but it's it's maybe one that could be really attractive. 
So I talked to Governor Little just about a year ago, and we talked about all these really wonky kind of local municipal issues, which was fun. And and he had made a, a stance that I think surprised people um, just after he came into office, and he, he acknowledged what I think most people think is obvious, which is that climate change is real. Yeah. And uh, that turned heads, I think it's fair to say. It did. Um, and so I, I actually got the first interview with him after he had said that. And, and we talked about that. And if I get really tricky, maybe I'll play in a little clip here in the podcast so we can hear that. So we'll pause for effect. But um, he essentially said that it was that commute that he did from Emmett down State Street to the Capitol that made his thinking go. He's like, you know, I would come over the hill from Emmett and it got smoggier and smoggier over the years. And that transit time got longer and longer. His comments surprised me. He also said that he wasn't opposed to what he called hot lanes, which is essentially what maybe is being looked at for State Street, right? Potentially. So I did a deep dive on this in August, and I think um, the statesman did something a little bit more recently, both of which sort of looked at what the plan is for State, and one of them is to figure out a way maybe to have a semi-dedicated lane for buses. Do you think it's going to happen? Do you think it'll work? Do you think we can get there? I do. I think I, I'm feeling really uh, more optimistic than I have for a while about it. I think there's a couple of things about it that make sense to me. So while the plan today calls for um, high occupancy lanes, um, in other words, a car with two or three people in it could travel in that lane or the bus could travel in that lane, At the end of the planning period, there was um, a bit of a disagreement about how to actually configure the lanes on State Street, and they got moved to the curb rather than in the middle of the street. And while the HOV lanes um, can and I think perhaps would work if there were median running, if they were in the middle, um, they really don't work very well on the edge because there's, there's... not very much incentive for me if I want to travel a little faster to travel in that curve because they lane. would sh- and they would share with the turn lanes yeah, along because State Street, you've right? Got yeah. All of those access points on on State Street, the ins and outs, and all of those things. So the idea that's beginning to emerge that might work is called business access transit. Back. And so if you had two full lanes that were just through lanes for the through traffic, and they were more in the middle of the road and on the curbs were these lanes that if you are turning in, if you are turning at the corner, you can be in that lane for a block. Or if you're turning out or you're coming out of a side street, you can be in that lane for a lane for a block. Otherwise, that lane is for buses or perhaps van pools or, you know, some other really high occupancy vehicles, not just a typical carpool. And if we had a system like that, I think it would Actually, I think it would work. I think, first of all, two full lanes with through travel in the middle of State Street would provide a lot of throughput volume for cars. At the same time, it would provide, I think, decent um, running for a bus vehicle, uh, even despite the turns and turnouts, especially if those buses were in what's called inline stops instead of pullouts. And so I think if we can really dig into that strategy, 
I, I feel a lot of, uh, of hope that it could work. The other, the other thing that gives me hope is that we're beginning to see an era where new transit vehicles are becoming available. One of the um, criticisms of bus travel has always been, oh, they're dirty, they're smelly, they're loud, they're, you know, all of the things that you hear about buses. And the new electric buses are none of that. They're quiet, they're relatively smooth running, they're um, really friendly to climate um, action, um, depending on where your electrical source comes from. And uh, there's even a newer version that's emerged in China that can be trained. So you can have two or three cars instead of just one bus. And um, and it runs on a little bit different platform instead of wheeled axles that rides more like a train, uh, a smoother ride and, and a little more train-like ride. So I think as we look at those vehicles and those emerge, first of all, they're they're more attractive to ride. Uh, they're especially the trained ones can easily move that five or six thousand people an hour that we might need. And um, I think they're they potentially get rid of some of the um, criticisms that people have of riding the bus. And and so I reported I think late last month some electric buses. Valley Ride has decided to uh, VRT I should say has decided to invest in that. So we're going to start to see those late this year, right? Um, which will be new here, and it'll replace some of the compressed natural gas buses that are on the roads. And so people will actually get to see that and ride that and kind of feel that. Um, what about the rest of the network? So we've talked a little bit about Rail Corridor. We've talked a little bit about State Street. <clears throat> There's more to it than that. Oh, yeah. There's north-south. <laughs> there's east Boise, southeast Boise. I, I live all the way almost to Highway 21, and there's no bus out there. Yeah. How do we start to connect more neighborhoods and bring them all together and give people – look, I get it. There's people listening to this who will not get out of their vehicle, and, and right. I, I get that, and there are very valid reasons why. But if we give people options, maybe we can help everybody out. Yeah. So how about the neighborhoods and the, the rest of the network? That, that really is, I think – the, the key that what people call first mile, last mile. How do you get to the bus stop? Um, is it comfortable? Is it convenient? Is it safe? Um, is it something you do? And a lot of new technologies are emerging, but we also have all the old technologies, what I call traditional transportation, walking and biking. You know, we were bipedal for an uh, awful long time as human beings before we invented the wheel. And even after we invented the wheel, we still walked most of the places that we went. And walking is still a great way to get around. It's cheap, it's easy, it keeps you healthy. Right. Um, so I think the more we can make walking a choice, at least for their short distances, to get to whatever it is you need to get to to then get to the bus or to, to get to the bus itself, um, we need to do that. But then we've got the electric scooters, which we have um, over half a million miles ridden already in downtown Boise. Those, again, offer a really good opportunity get from your home to that bus stop um, relatively quickly, cheaply, easily. Um, we have electric bikes. Our new um, fleet of bike share will be all electric. Uh, they offer maybe a little bit longer um, 
range. Range, mm -hmm. exactly, to get to that bus stop or wherever it is. Uh, while scooters are being ridden mostly about a mile, yeah. um, the electric bikes, we think, would, would be ridden up to three or four miles. So uh, that's another option. We've got autonomous shuttles. I was able to run to ride in an autonomous shuttle last fall at a demonstration mm -hmm. in uh, at the National League of Cities. And, you know, this shuttle could handle nine people. It um, doesn't go very fast. It goes about, 12, this one was 12 miles an hour. It had a top range of 18 miles an hour, but only on a really dedicated space, not in mixed traffic. Um, so I think there's some misunderstanding that shuttles somehow can replace buses. Right now, they're not anywhere near that. But what they can't do is, is provide a circular, circulator route. Right out in neighborhoods. I'm not sure they have enough capacity to be the downtown kind, but out in neighborhoods to get people from their home to the destination maybe at the shopping or to the bus stop. Um, around campuses, around the mall. I think there's great opportunity potentially to use these uh, AV shuttles here and there. So if you add all of those together, if we can get a system that provides that, uh, we can get to the bus. But then the bus, we have to have those corridors. State is one. Fairview is ultimately going to emerge as one. Uh, Vista is already one. It connects to the airport. I think ultimately we'll probably have Emerald and Overland in uh, Canyon County. We'll probably have from Meridian to Nampa the Franklin Corridor. In between Nampa and Caldwell, we'll have the Nampa-Caldwell Boulevard. All of those will be the kind of corridor maybe that we talked about on State Street, but you still have to get to them. So we need to have those north-south connecting routes. And if you look at the plan that's emerged from VRT, it, it begins to talk to that. Um, the components that we're talking about in Boise right now will not get to all of that, but it will begin to build the base that could support that. And I think we'll be looking at at least one uh, route where we might make some changes that would begin that change to a more connected system rather than the spoken wheel system. You, you mentioned the circulator. Um, former Mayor Beater, that was a big uh, push of his for a long time. Um, the current mayor said on this podcast last month that uh, Mayor McLean said that's not really her her priority, but she thinks maybe there are some other options. I look at this Boise State shuttle that goes around in a circle that always seems to just gush people when the doors open. Yeah. Do you think that that's still going to be a need, maybe even if it isn't rail, but that that downtown circulation, Boise State, St. Luke's, is still something that's necessary? And how do we do that? I, I do think it is a need, and and I know some folks have talked about the AV shuttles as serving that need, but as you noted, those um, little shuttle buses that uh, Boise State's running around, which I think have a capacity of 20 seated and 35 with standing room, um, are always full. Yeah, it's and crazy. So, uh, the, I, I see the busiest bus stop in Boise is the one, not in the basement at the, the transit top. center, yeah. but the one up top, people getting on the Boise State shuttle. Yeah, I, I agree. And so I, I don't believe the little AV shuttles are big enough vehicle to serve that need. But I, I think we clearly see that the need is there. 
So these um, vehicles I talked about that are being developed in China, I think maybe have great promise for that kind of a, a system. They look and act like a streetcar, but they're on wheels. And uh, if not that, just electric buses, which will be much quieter. I think one of the criticisms of a bus circulator in a downtown is the noise and the uh, pollution, even with compressed natural natural gas, there's still some, you know, odor and other things. And so I think an electric bus at very least, but potentially there's some new emerging technology, new emerging vehicles that, that could serve that really well. In fact, I'll throw out another idea. I don't see any reason, given the ingenuity in Boise, the innovation that we're famous for, that we can start thinking about, is is that a vehicle that we could develop and sell to the mid-sized cities all over the United States? And we obviously, I mean, we have the talent here, right? And and, and with the closure of, of uh, motive power, obviously those people are going to quickly go get other jobs. Jobs, but we've been a place that's built trains and, and has done some of that and fire yeah. engines and all sorts of other right. vehicles. And so maybe there's an entrepreneur out there that sees a lane, <laughs> not E-lane, but A-lane <clears throat> to yes. go and, and do this. Or come talk to me and there I'll see go. what I can do to there, help you. There you go. Okay, I want to ask you about just a couple other things. You um, <laughs> you put forth a proposal, a, kind of a, maybe a priority, and you can characterize it for this year around trees. <laughs> and you said that you would like to see the city of trees plant 100,000 new trees, which is one for every household, not person, but household. Right. Tell us about that. I'm really excited about it. I, for um, you know, going back to my history, the very first thing I did as neighborhood association president was uh, come to the city and ask them to uh, change the way that they manage the street trees in the city, and they did. I've always loved trees; they've been very special to me all my life. Uh, this last year, um, there was a microburst out in southeast Boise, and it knocked down 27 trees at Red Pine Elementary. My grand, some of my grandchildren go there, and my daughter took it upon herself to make sure that those trees got replanted and watching that was um, helped me get the idea that we're not doing enough and that trees have this really special way of bringing people together of um, you know who doesn't love trees right. who doesn't love NASA and NASA's come out with a report that if we plant enough trees we might make a difference in climate change um, so I began thinking about it and you know what was what was realistic and city um, was a partner in a canopy study. We know where every tree in the valley is by GIS. And in that study, uh, we identified 100,000 planting sites inside the city of Boise. Good planting sites that have water that are in the right place from a sun perspective. Um, and so, you know, as I began thinking about all that, uh, it, it just made so much sense to me to try and get, because we have a goal as a city. Right now we have a 14% canopy cover. We have a goal to get to about 24%. We're not getting there. We're not getting there anywhere near fast enough, and this might get us there. And so um, began talking about it. It seems like maybe it's realistic. And, you know, uh, those of you who know me, Don knows me well enough at this point. <laughs> Besides being a big walk, I'm also a big dreamer. And um, why not challenge every city in the United States to do the same thing if we can figure it out? And that's why I want to call it the City of Trees Challenge. We're going to challenge ourselves, plant a tree for every household here. Um, if you do it over 10 years, that's 10,000 trees a year and 27 trees a day. It's a lot. It's a lot of trees. Yeah. 
yeah. it's not it's not a small thing it's a big thing but then the other piece of it is that we could also sponsor a tree for every resident somewhere in the forest um, because our forest cover as a world as a globe our forest cover is declining and so yeah I'm I'm really jacked about it I think it's it's the kind of thing that actually could happen and could get people excited and could give people a reason to be optimistic and hopeful and all of the great things that we love about, at least I love, about the United States is that we're always a country trying to figure out how to do things better. And we haven't haven't had that vibe for a, quite a long time. And so I'm kind of excited. So business books would call it a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. <laughs> is it going to be something maybe city, the city help funds? Is that your intent? A coalition? Where does the money come it from? It would be a big coalition. Yeah, the city, I'm sure, will have a role in it. But uh, already in the little bit of talking I've done about it, there's, there's lots and lots of folks who are interested in participating, uh, industry folks, business folks, Arbor Day Foundation, potentially some national nonprofits, um, conservation-focused ones, uh, forest companies, sure. and then individual people who've said, I'll, I'll sponsor a tree, what can I do? I'll plant trees, what can I do? So I think, yeah, it's uh, it's an all of the above. It's partly city, but if it's going to work, we're going to need everybody. It seems like it makes sense, right? Boise, the word is derived from, from trees. <laughs> we have Boise Cascade, which is known for its trees. We have Boise National Forest, which is trees. <laughs> and we're called the city of trees, so maybe that all connects and makes us a leader. Elaine Clegg, you know, I could ask you more questions, but we like to keep these somewhat short. We didn't break the Luke Kavanagh record for length, but this is pretty good. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the Boise Doc Podcast. Thank you so much. It was great to be here.